Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Donald Trump famously or infamously described the coronavirus as the China flu or the Kung flu uh, and suggested that the, the Chinese, one way or the other, are if officially or unofficially trying to uh, poison us or kill us off and that uh, the Chinese had this terrible virus that they were exporting to the rest of the world. That, of course, was nonsense, uh, as well as racist and all the rest of it. But there may be a Chinese virus, at least in ideological or political terms, that is much more dangerous in the long term than the coronavirus. That is the digital totalitarian model of politics being designed now in China by the current Chinese regime. Um, that, at least according to Kai Strittmatter, Kai is a German journalist now based in Copenhagen, and he has a very compelling and chilling new book out. It's called We Have Been Harmonized, Life in China's Surveillance State. Uh, Kai, how unique is this Chinese model? You suggest in the book it's this chilling synthesis of Orwell's 1984 and Huxley's Brave New World. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that the China we're dealing with at the moment is just not anymore the China we grew up with, you know, the China we've been used to for the past 30 or 40 years. That was a China of reform and opening up. That was a China that allowed us for some years to have a kind of fantasy that this country would become more and more like us and would change into a free democratic capitalist state in the end, ideally in the eyes of some. Uh, that just hasn't happened uh, on the opposite uh, in the past seven or eight years under uh, party secretary Xi Jinping. China really has changed radically. And uh, first of all, it's become as repressive as it hasn't been for decades. So there's really a return of ideology. There's uh, freedoms are being curtailed again. The niche that civil society has cut out in this country in the past years are gone again. Um, it's really, I mean, Xi Jinping is no Mao Zedong, he's very different, but it is as repressive as it has not been since the times of Mao. So this is one thing. He's going back to a sort of, on the one hand, old school Leninism, you could say. On the other hand, I mean, you know, we've seen many uh, uh, old school 1950s Leninist, socialist, Marxist states all over the world failing and disappearing. If that would be the only thing he did, we, would, we, sh we wouldn't have to be worried, probably. But on the other hand, he's uh, uh, at the same time doing something very different. With one foot, he goes back into the 1950s. With the other foot, he's going very, very far ahead into the future. 
uh, and he's using modern uh, information technology and he really what he does is he tries to actually create a digital update of dictatorship and in that combination this is really this will be a state in the end like uh, I would argue uh, we haven't seen yet. Uh, we had Shoshana Zuboff on the show a few months ago talking about surveillance capitalism, this new economic and cultural system that she believes is being built by Silicon Valley. Is the model being developed in China, is it a, a complementary model to Zuboff's notion of surveillance capitalism? Uh, you say, you call it in your book, the surveillance state. Is it surveillance totalitarianism? In 1984, of course, there were famously cameras in everyone's homes, but they weren't very efficient. Now, of course, with digital technology, uh, the camera is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's, an, it's in our homes. We wear it. We may even ingest it. Exactly. I think... Um... This is really what we're seeing. You know, totalitarianism is a word that has been used quite often uh, in regards to China, also in the past decades. And I would suggest that after Mao Zedong, that word was nonsense. China was always a dictatorship, but it was after Mao no totalitarian state anymore. You know, there were little niches of freedom. There was a civil society. There were interesting people, groups organizing uh, and all. And it was not a state that tried to get into the last corner of your brain. It was not a state anymore that would try to get under your, your, you know, your bedding uh, as it was under Mao Zedong. Uh, and uh, now we're seeing a return of totalitarianism. And the thing is, and I, th I would suggest the scary thing is, it's a much smarter form of totalitarianism, you know, because the totalitarianism of old, old days uh, of Stalin and Mao, that was a totalitarianism that had to rely on a large part on everyday violence and terror. And that's just not the case anymore. With, this, uh, with these smart new technologies, actually one thing the Communist Party in China is trying to do is actually to internalize control, to, to make it, you know, uh, let you, you, you yourself are going to be your own policeman. You don't need a policeman at the corner anymore. And you're carrying around your surveillance tools with you yourself. You're carrying it around to the toilet, into the bed, and uh, so wherever you don't have a... In many ways, rather than a return to either Orwell or Huxley, it's a return to Bentham's early 19th century panopticon, which was designed not to watch everyone, but was designed in a way that so that everybody feared they were being watched. Is, is that an accurate description, particularly of the, the social credit system now being built by the Ch Chinese Communist Party? Exactly, that's a big part of it. You know, the, the all-seeing, all-powerful uh, all eye that is hovering above us and it might not look at you at the moment, but uh, that's not the point. The point it is, it could do. So that's it could do. Exactly. And as long as you have the fear of that in, inside of you, you will behave accordingly. And uh, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, religion has used this for thousands of years and authoritarian systems have tried to. And now for the first time in history, they, it actually might work, you know. 
Bentham's Panopticon, I think many, uh, many people have tried to actually construct one. I don't think there ever was a perfect model of that. Mm. But maybe now Xi Jinping will be succeeding with this. Famously, of course, uh, Bentham with his brother went to Russia to build a panopticon-like structure for Catherine the Great, who, of course, was one of Europe's pioneering uh, so-called enlightened despots. Would you describe the current Chinese regime as a kind of enlightened despotism, a technocratic despotism? They're not reactionary. They're not Stalin. They're not stupid, these people. Uh, that's, of course, the way they would uh, like and love to look at them themselves, that they are like the wise dictators, the enlightened dictators that work for the best of the people. And to a way you could argue they are not like autocrats in other parts of the world, some, you know, Central Asian kleptocrats or African uh, dictators really exploiting everybody and only looking after their own good. They are trying to do some material good for the people. They are trying uh, also, they are trying to uh, make China strong, as they say in the China dream. You know, there's the Chinese dream now, and it's very different from the American dream, obviously, because it's a nationalistic, a great power chauvinistic dream. So there is some uh, more to it than just um, pure power play. But in the end, you know, it is, if you, if you look at it closely and if you analyze the system, uh, and if, it, if push comes to shove and if they have to choose between the state and the people on the one side and the power of the party, the eternal power of the party, they will always go for the latter. And actually what we've been seeing in the past years is a return to the centralization of power in the hands of the party. It's the party wants complete and total control again. And this, again, this is something we hadn't seen for 40 years in China. It was a very different beast. And uh, is this built around a, 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 a Stalinist style cult of personality of Xi Jinping? Uh, who is this guy? Is he when you see his picture in, in the Western media, he looks like a, a, a typically technocratic um, uh, East Asian political leader. Uh, does he have illusions or delusions of Mao or Stalin or Hozier? Is he back to the, the mid-20th century Orwellian totalitarian leader, so brilliantly satirized by Orwell and, and analyzed by Hannah Arendt? I wouldn't say he's, he's back to Stalin's way of doing or even Mao's way of doing, but certainly the latter. He's back to Hannah Arendt and George Orwell's path. He is on that path. He is, many people have compared him and newspaper headlines have compared him to Mao Zedong. They say, you know, Xi Jinping is the new Mao. That's, that's nonsense. Xi Jinping is no Mao. Because Mao, he was, he loved chaos. He was a rebel. He was the eternal rebel. And he didn't mind ruining China. You know, China was really... Uh, was rebels after the Cultural Revolution. It was completely destroyed, basically, and that was no coincidence. He, he did this uh, uh, on pure purpose just because of his power. He wanted to keep his power. Xi Jinping is completely different. He is a control freak. He is a fetishist about stability. But at the same time, his main goal is really the internal prolongation of party rule. This is what he wants. He once said in an internal meeting, and that was leaked uh, 
uh, he said, you know, they, they are talking about the Soviet Union quite often and he's talking about Gorbachev. And that's obviously um, the worst model for them. That's their worst fear that they could, they could go down the way of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And he said the Soviet Union went down that path because they were missing, uh, they were missing a real man. And the implication obviously being him now being the real man. And he's styling himself as a, in a patriarchal way as the father of the people on the one hand. And at the same time, there's a really, there is, like you said, there's the return of a personality cult. It's not as bad as in Stalin's days, but for China, that's stunning. Because one of the things really after the death of Mao was the eternal vow by Deng Xiaoping and all the other communist leaders, never again, will we have a personality cult like this? Because we have seen where this leads to. This can lead a country into the biggest cat catastrophes. Uh, and now, really 30 years later, we are seeing the return of this cult also. Hi, Kai, some people will be watching this and, 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 and might be slightly chilled, obviously by your vision of China, but also by your message. Uh, they might be thinking to themselves, so here we go again. China's finally getting its act together. It has an uh, almost uh, wealthy and powerful economy as the US. It has a more powerful economy, perhaps, than, than Europe. And now we have a, a European journalist falling into the classic traps of Orientalism, uh, Edward Said's famous critique of Western colonialism, the idea that the, the yellow peril, the, the Asians are coming and they've constructed this inhuman political cultural system to enslave us all. How, how would you respond to that kind of critique of your work? Of course, that's, that's nonsense. Uh, this has nothing to do with the Chinese soul, you know. This is nothing. There's nothing. There's not a lot of Chinese things about this regime, you know. You talk about Orient orientalism. Uh, I use that word as well in my book and I describe the Communist Party itself with it because they actually constructed a whole philosophy of orientalism about their own rule uh, uh, when they say, you know, this is like we are in this unique China, we have this unique culture, we are not ready for anything like your Western freedom, democracy and whatever. And the only kind of rule that is ever imaginable for our people who are not ready at all for something like democracy is a rule like ours at the moment and none else. That's Orientalism. But if you look closely, you know, this Chinese regime at the moment, this is, you know, Xi Jinping, he goes out now, he says, I'm going to give the world the Chinese wisdom. He said that, you know, I'm giving the Chinese wisdom of the world. But what he's talking about has nothing to do with Confucius or Taoism or feng shui, his so-called Chinese wisdom is nothing else but a Leninist, old school Leninist dictatorship with a digital update, of course. If you want to analyze the Chinese political system, you don't need to read Confucius. Read Lenin, read Marx, read Mao, that's all you need. Kai, how uh, aggressively and seriously is the Chinese Communist Party packaging up this political system and exporting it overseas to Asia and Africa, perhaps even Eastern Europe? Yeah, obviously, this is another new thing. You know, China was very, very low key on the international scene uh, under Deng Xiaoping and his 
successes. For the first time since 2017, since Xi Jinping came out on this party congress and said this thing about the Chinese wisdom being given to the world, for the first time we see them quite offensively and uh, aggressively stepping out and claiming, or as they would see, reclaiming their role in the center of the world. This is a quote from Xi Jinping. We're going to be again in the center of the world. And the unspoken message obviously is we're going to catch up, if not overtake the United States there. So what we have been seeing in the past couple of years is at least um, if we're not saying a threat, let's call it a challenge, a big, big challenge to liberal democracies and me being a European, I would say the Europeans as well. And that challenges that uh, we're really seeing a quite aggressive approach on some fronts in terms of them exporting some of their norms and values, you know, trying, for example, censoring us, censoring our companies on our home turf, or, uh, you know, having Hollywood movies suddenly cutting out aggressive Chinese roles and suddenly praising China for their peaceful, harmonic approach and things like this, pressuring German publishing companies into self-censoring their uh, 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 their websites and all these things that we hadn't hadn't seen before. A lot of stuff going on in Australia as well on that front. Exactly, exactly. A lot of what they call, what socialist regimes call united front tactics, you know, that they're using on, they're trying to make friends, they're trying to make influence. And there's been a lot of talk about Russia for many years in the past and not enough talk about China. When I started writing my book, obviously that has changed now. Suddenly China is in a central role. China used to be still very different from, from Russia. Uh, Russia had quite different uh, strategies, you know, with their internet trolling and their uh, uh, Twitter bots and their Russia Today and other media, like very direct uh, methods of influence. China was more subtle for many years. Is. But at the same time, it, uh, China did it with a lot more resources. You know, if you look at the economic power of China compared to Russia, obviously the much bigger challenge is going to be China. And China was going into our universities, into our think tanks, trying to sort of co-opt people. And uh, so um, all I'm saying is, yeah, we, we need to pay attention. And uh, there are uh, points where we have to step up and uh, defend our liberal values. Uh, our liberal values, uh, our universal liberal values, it's not just in Europe or, or the United States where people have liberal values. They're also um, in Asia. And of course, there's currently a, a chilling standoff between uh, the people in Hong Kong and the Chinese government uh, and I'm interested in your take on that, as well as more broadly, um, your analysis, uh, you've written a book, Life in China's Surveillance State, but how, how uniform is the Chinese people's acceptance of this system? They may be scared, but at what point will or could possibly we get another Tiananmen Square, another citizen rebellion against this digital totalitarianism? All right, so first the Hong Kong question. I would say, you know, basically for the first time since the Cold War, the competition of system is back. 
uh, we have really two different systems. And the Chinese were saying this long before Donald Trump and other people in the West have been saying this in internal publications. Very soon after Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, you could read things about, you know, the ideological battle against Western values actually being taken up again. And I guess maybe in the end, it's not really surprising what's happening in Hong Kong. It's very, it's heartbreaking. I have many friends there and it's devastating, but maybe Hong Kong really never had a chance because in a way they were a living, you know, they were a living alternative to everything that you, that you see in China. You had a people there. The Brits never gave the Hong Kongers democracy. Yeah. This is something we can also, you know, we, you, you can also accuse London of. But what they did give the Hong Kongers was the rule of law, separation of powers and freedom of arbitrary rule. And so you have this really uh, courageous and, and uh, engaged people in Hong Kong trying to fight for the freedoms they were used to for nearly a hundred years, you know. And, um, but China, I think they just can't have that at their doorstep now. And I think they, they were using the coronavirus crisis actually sort of, you know, trying in the, in the shadow of that, um, seeing that everybody else was preoccupied uh, with themselves uh, in solving that for once and all. So this is one thing. And the second thing is, um, Internally, of course, there are critical people in China. And of course, there are people you would call dissidents. There are also critical people inside the party. In fact, there's one of them that was expelled from the party only uh, uh, two or three days ago. It was reported today in the newspapers, a courageous lady named Tsai Xia. She was a professor at the party university in Beijing. And she calls Xi Jinping really, she calls him a mafia boss and, uh, and things like that. So you have people like this, but you have to be nearly suicidal in a system that has the capabilities, the surveillance capabilities uh, and the repression, uh, the instruments of repression uh, as the Beijing regime has to speak out. So I would say the big difference for a couple of, uh, as opposed to a couple of years ago is you still do have these individuals that are critical and uh, would love to see a different path for the country, but they can't organize anymore and they can't speak out anymore. That was different until seven or eight years ago. And I think the party realizes this, and this is one of the reasons why you, why you saw uh, in, in the process of dealing with the coronavirus crisis, uh, you know, for the first couple of weeks, the party actually lost control and there was an outpour and they lost control over social media as well, which was an amazing thing, you know, uh, given their powers. But this was a time of extreme crisis and suddenly them losing control, they're completely paranoid about it. And, and they started what they called a people's war against the virus in February and in March and pulled all their power and everything and propaganda, censorship, and they were started arresting people, started arresting citizen journalists, video bloggers, outspoken people on the internet to get back the narrative and to get back control over the narrative that is circulating among its people. And I think they're doing this quite successfully. I think this is something we underestimate very often, the power of propaganda. This is something I took with me when I left China. Propaganda works, censorship works. Um, dictatorship works for a long time it doesn't work forever but um well i certainly hope it doesn't work forever and i have a feeling that this confrontation between the chinese people and the chinese communist party will become 
perhaps the, the greatest story of the first half of the 21st century. Anyway, uh, Kai, uh, Kai Strit matters. We have been harmonized. Life in China's surveillance state is a real eye-opener. Eye it's, a, it's a critical read for anyone who's interested in what's happening in contemporary China. Uh, everyone should, should, should read the book. It's, 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 it's not only chilling, but very readable and accessible. Uh, Kai, you're in Denmark at the moment, I think in Copenhagen. What else should people be reading in this strange late summer of 2020? I would suggest, you know, as I really, I mean, my book is about China, but actually, you know, in truth, to be honest, it's just as much about us. It's uh, about the West uh, sort of really being in deep crisis and the autocratic threats from within. So I would suggest your readers, especially in the United States, read one of my favorite authors uh, of the past uh, three or four years, Masha Gessen. She's writing for The New Yorker, but she has written some fabulous books about the autocratic threat also within our societies. And if you want to read something about China or from China, I would suggest you go back to the past and read China's greatest author, Lu Xun. He's actually, he's published uh, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. And the amazing thing is he was, you know, he was a social critic in China and he was a literary author. And you read him 100 years later and you can't help but feeling, wow, exactly the same problems he's talking about. You know, the corruption, uh, the autocratic nature of the rulers, the slave mentality of some of the subjects, exactly the same problems China was dealing with 100 years ago, they still have to deal with, uh, with today. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.